going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's going down And you're invited for what they selling We ain't buying There is no running There is no hiding There's only fighting Or dying It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. My name is Benjamin Case. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an organizer, researcher, and writer. And I work on a number of different projects, um, both in organizing and in writing. And um, my, my first book is just out uh, called Street Rebellion, Resistance Beyond Violence and Nonviolence. Uh, it's a beautiful looking book. We're excited to talk about it. It's out on AK Press. Uh, so just tell us about the book and why you chose to write it. There's you know, several books that talk about riots and rebellion. We're going to kind of get into that as we continue this conversation. But what drew you to this topic? Every time there's a moment of uprising, I feel like there's this recurring argument. And it's the same type of argument happening over and over, over violence and nonviolence. And I saw that in my uh, organizing career. I would see this happening over and over. And there's a number of arguments like that, right? It's one, it's one of several. But um, but it's one that I found to be um, particularly destructive because, you know, I noticed in my own experience and I, I can talk more about that as well if you want. But, you know, I noticed that a lot of times we were having these arguments. We weren't really talking about what was happening on the ground. We were talking about, you know, abstractions um, of, of these concepts. And often we were talking past each other. Uh, and I saw it as 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 serving a destruction, a destructive function, um, distracting us, sometimes turning us against each other. Um, and again, I saw people talking past each other and, um, a lot, I saw a lot of confusion in this and I wanted to dig into it. I wanted to unpack it. I wanted to unravel some of that, um, you know, some of those tangled strands uh, and hopefully, um, you know, hopefully move the conversation past, uh, these, these sort of same recurring arguments we're having. Do you feel like those conversations are happening more? I guess to back up a little bit, I was coming out when I when I first started this project, I was coming out of the Occupy movement, uh, and I'm I'm you know from the the area around um, you know what's what's New York City, and um, I was part of the the Zuccotti Park um, Occupy site and, and part of some of the movements that spun out of that, and you know coming out of that, I saw I saw I saw those arguments happening in in the public sphere and also between activists. I saw them happening in the ways that people were talking about that wave of global uprisings in 2011 um, that preceded Occupy. Right. There was these there was these spectacular uprisings happening all over the world, um, first in Tunisia, then in Egypt, and then across you know North Africa and the Levant in Greece and Spain, and Nigeria and Canada, all over the world. It seemed like there were uprisings popping off everywhere. Um, we felt like we were really in this revolutionary moment. And um, that was one. You know, I saw that argument as. Um, as, as really getting in the way of, of us being able to build momentum on some of these things. Um, and I saw it as, as recurring from, from previous, um, you know, organizing experiences I had had. I do think that that has, um, 
that that has continued. I think, you know, we saw that in, I think we've seen that in, in, in some of the, you know, solidarity movements and anti-war movements. I think we saw it in, especially the first round of the Black Lives Matter uprising. Um, I think, uh, we, we definitely saw it in, you know, resistance to the Trump regime and anti-fascist resistance to, to the, the rise of, or the return of fascism to, to mainstream politics. So we've definitely seen it recurring in those same ways. I will say that I think the last few years have been a little bit different. Um, I think the conversation is changing. I think a few things, um, a few things are contributing to that. Um, and it's, it's a positive development. I hope that the, the information in this book helps uh, push things in the right direction. But I do think things are changing specifically, um, following the, the 2020 racial justice uprising, the George Floyd uprising. I think that changed things a lot uh, in the U.S. context. Um, and then, um, you know, some other things, um, some other things in, in other places as well. In the title, I'm curious what is meant by beyond violence and nonviolence. We're taught that these are two opposite ends of the spectrum. How can you go beyond both? I want us to go beyond the binary of violence and nonviolence. I guess that's what I'm getting at. And it's meant to be a little bit, you know, provocative and, and to, to provoke curiosity. Um, it's not so much as, as going beyond um, one or the other. I don't necessarily even have a problem with either of the, the terms in and of themselves, um, depending on the context. But I want to go beyond this sort of like packaged argument of violence versus nonviolence as we understand it. Um, and because this is like, like you probably could write the script. Anybody who's been involved in organizing, depending on whichever, you know, where, where you stand on that spectrum, um, you could probably write a script of how this debate goes, um, both within movements and also in, in, you know, the public sphere, um, of, of what it looks like, of, of what the, what the two sides are arguing. And I find that a lot of people in movements gravitate to one or the other, almost as though we're rooting for a sports team or we're, you know, we're like, you know, competing with who's, you know, whose band or whose type of music is better or something like that, which is to me not productive for for building power. Um, so I, I want to move beyond those particular discussions, like when when whether we're talking about small scale, like a tactical question if we're organizing or whether we're, we're assessing or analyzing broader developments in movements. I don't want to argue about if a movement is is violent or nonviolent, um, because I don't think that's I don't think that's an important question. I think that question is serving as a proxy for other things. Um, I think that's serving as a proxy for for you know questions like do you support it or not? Um, for is it disruptive or not? Is it you know does it ask questions of you that are uncomfortable or not? Um, you know what. It's standing in for all these other things that I would rather talk about those things. I want to get past using violence and nonviolence as this proxy. I think it allows all kinds of leakage of other um, other confusions to to work their way into our discussions of movements and how we build power together. In the introduction, you write, uh, quote, nearly all mass movements that challenge power involve physically confrontational street actions. However, listening to most voices today, you wouldn't know it. I mean, <laughs> I understand what you're talking about, but dive into that a little more. Okay. And of course, it, it depends on which voices you're listening to, of course. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about, um, if you're listening to the media talk about protests, right? Um, one thing you'll reliably hear is if, you know, if, if the talking head, if you suspect the talking head supports a movement, you will always hear them talk about it as nonviolent. And even when you don't have to, right? So if you're talking about there was a protest today and they had a sit-in, okay, you've, you've given me the information, you described the sit-in. 
but they'll say there was a nonviolent protest that had a sit-in. Like a sit-in is not nonviolent. If there was something, if they broke something, you would tell us, right? Like, but they'll throw the word in nonviolent. They'll tell you it's nonviolent. Um, and what this does is it sets up this understanding that protests are nonviolent at a baseline, if they're good, right? If, if, if we're considering them protests. Um, and, you know, when, when something happens, when, when there's, when there's violence on the part of protesters, you'll often hear media talk about protests as turning violent, right? A protest should start nonviolent. It turned violent. Something happened. Something went wrong. Um, of course, if, if, if you're, you know, opposing the protest, you'll almost always describe them as violent or find a way to describe them as violent in some way or another, uh, you know, irrespective of what they're actually doing. Um, and, you know, we particularly see this in, in the U.S. with with right wing and right leaning news sources like Fox News and whatever, who will describe, you know, if it's if it was Black Lives Matter protesters blocking traffic, they would describe that as violent. And, you know, you can make that argument. We can go down that rabbit hole. But why? Right. That's sort of the the, the question I want to ask. Why are we going down that rabbit hole? What does it mean to say that it's that it's violent or nonviolent? Um, but to get back to. Right, so to say that most, uh, you know, when you listen to a lot of public voices, you wouldn't know it. You know, again, in the media, and we're talking about protests when they're happening, but also the histories we learn about movements. Um, um, again, especially movements that are meant to be portrayed in a positive light. So, in, our, in you know, in the U.S., again, if we're talking about the labor movement um, in the past or the civil rights movement, um, you know, these are things that are portrayed in a, in a selective way uh, to leave out certain elements that are less comfortable. And those often are, are ones where people are engaging um, in something other than than strict nonviolent struggle. Um, of course, those things really happen. So you're, you're telling a partial version of the story. And that happens in other contexts as well. If we're learning about the, you know, the fall of the apartheid government in South Africa, or if we're learning about, you know, the people power movement in the Philippines, or the fall of the, you know, the Soviet Union. Um, these are associated with protests often, um, but only certain type of protests. And um, again, we don't often see those replayed images of riots unless there's a, partic- a particular reason to. And it creates this atmosphere where like if there's riots happening and also other other types of 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 actions that are not nonviolent. I focus in this particular book on riots for a number of reasons I can talk about. But, you know, this also applies to other things like strategic sabotage and, you know, community defense and other things like that. Um, but it sets up this 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 this, um, you know, it sets up a narrative where those sorts of things are aberrations within these movements. Like, yeah, sometimes they happen, but maybe they're, you know, it's a problem. It's people who are, you know, who are going too far, getting it wrong, or agent provocateurs, often it'll be blamed on, or, you know, something is wrong about those parts of it. But then the main thrust of the narrative um, is nonviolent protest. I think that's a problem. And I think that that um, it's not random. That doesn't just happen for no reason. It comes from particular places. Um and one of the main areas is is this this area of research, um, sometimes called strategic nonviolence, or sometimes called civil resistance studies. Um, sometimes it's sort of embedded within peace studies. It's an area of research um, and writing that kind of spans academia and the policy world and security agency world. Um, and that's that's going out there and telling the story in a particular type of way and repeating the story and trying to back it up with research and sort of um, you know getting across the idea that. This is what protests look like. They're nonviolent. Yeah, I mean, just even given the example of the George Floyd uprising, which definitely violence was a part of it. There was, you know, almost two dozen people that were killed, a majority of them by uh, far right vigilantes, the police. But when violence is talked about in the context of the George Floyd uprising, it's almost always about property, either things being looted or police cars being burnt down or 
even that will be attempted to be minimized. You know, oh, the majority, the vast majority was nonviolent, um, which is interesting because it overshadows the actual violence that actually took place, like against human beings, you know, both in terms of far right vigilantes or the military or the police themselves. Um, but it also, many as have pointed out, kind of brushes aside the actual rebellion for what it was. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, and that, that's important. That's important. There's a few things there that um, that are coming up that I think are, are worth focusing on for a moment. Um, first, you're completely right in, in both directions. It obscures the violence of, of course, the violence of the state, which is like all but taken for granted in protest moment, uh, moments that the, the police can be violent, but also vigilantes, um, you know, and, and, you know, right wingers who are using this as an opportunity to, to hurt people and escalate struggle. Um, and it also obscures the way that, you know, you might say that the uprising itself was riotous in the sense that it was disrupting the norm in a really palpable way. And whether or not an individual action was setting things on fire or breaking windows or whether it was, you know, sitting in the street and blocking traffic or whether it was having, you know, a, a vigil or, or a, a protest that was more um, that, that was, you know, completely nonviolent. Regardless, the movement as a whole was was creating this moment of rupture and all those sorts of actions intertwined together. And that's part of of what I want to focus on is instead of trying to parse out the percentage of the protests that were violent or not, let's talk about the way they interacted to create this moment of uprising. Um, but to go back for a moment to the, the right wing vigilantes, because I think this is also important to to mention the word riot is, um, you know, it's it's ambiguous. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. Um, I think it's important to use it because it does, it gets people's attention. It kind of raises our pulses. Um, but it's, um, it's, it's not a very, you know, it's, it, there's no agreed upon definition of riot. And I wanted, I want to clarify that when I'm in, in this particular project, I'm looking at a subset of riots and I'm calling them riots and I'm using other words for other things, um, just to be, you know, just for the sake of clarity. Um, but the word riot often gets applied to, to all kinds of, of um, collective violent actions. Um, for example, um, people often talk about a riot in terms of a, an ethnic riot or a race riot where there's a dominant racial or ethnic group in whatever society it's in, um, a dominant group attacking a marginalized or vulnerable, a vulnerable population um, uh, in order to hurt people, right? And terrorizing a vulnerable population. And so in the US, for example, we saw, um, you know, in the early 20th century, late 19th and early 20th century, um, a whole wave of these types of mob violence of white communities attacking and destroying black neighborhoods and attacking black people, right? Like the Tulsa massacre is, is, is the most famous, but there's a whole, um, you know, there's, there's an entire history there. Those are often called riots. That's a different sort of phenomenon that I'm talking about. They're related, but they're different and it's important to distinguish them. Um, you know, we can also talk about during that same era, um, anti-Jewish mob violence in Europe, or we could talk about, um, you know, more recently, um, anti-Muslim mob violence in India, or, you know, or, or um, different sorts of phenomena like that. So I use the word pogrom to describe those sorts of things. Um, and I use riot to describe what you could call anti-police violence, or violence by um, people who are, who are exploited, oppressed, marginalized, um, uh, taking viol violent action or taking non-nonviolent action, if you prefer, um, against um, authorities, against the symbols of their oppression, the symbols of capital, the symbols of, of the state, um, and things like that. And 
those are different for a number of reasons. They're different sort of sociopolitical events because in one case people are, are enacting, it's got to do with the direction that systemic power is flowing, right? People are enacting systemic power to an extreme degree in, in the program. Um, people are resisting it in the anti-police riot. And the, and what, what got me thinking on this is when you mentioned the, the violence against bodies that was, um, that was perpetuated by right-wing vigilantes in the George Floyd uprising moment. The, you know, it's not, it's not exclusive, but we very often see in the program a focus on attacking bodies, um, historically across context. Often, um, a lot of casualties, high body counts, a lot of carnage of this sort of event. Um, part of that has to do with the kind of hatreds that are at work, and part of it has to do with the fact that police are often complicit, um, if not participating in these sorts of events. They allow them to go a lot further. Um, but in, um, in the case of anti-police riots, you very often see a focus on property. And on, um, on on symbols. Also, in some cases, against bodies, but but very frequently we're talking about things like throwing rocks at armored police or things that certainly could hurt people. Um, but it's a completely different type of um, uh, of type of action and type of expression um, than um, than the program. So I just wanted to um, to go through that for a moment. Yeah, there's two really good books, and I'm sure that these might have even been a part of your sources for your own book, but um. Uh, there's a by Paul Gilgi, uh, Gilgi, yeah. yeah, and it talks about how prevalent writing was in pre-colonial America and even like during you know what is called the American Revolution, either in terms of you know things like uh, people writing over the price of bread or the rising of the price of various commodities, which of course is very interesting considering our current context with inflation. Also, another fabulous book that we've plugged numerous times on this podcast is uh, Poor People's Movements. Uh, which is fascinating. You know, they have a definition of riots as essentially a strike by, you know, another means. It's a way for people to engage in, in putting forward a negative sanction on society or the state and capitalism by people that because of their position in the economy have no leverage over production. Therefore, the only way they can do that is to stop adhering to civil rule. They can riot. Yeah, um, Gilgi's book, he's written a couple books on this that are absolutely part of the study. And, um, yeah, Poor People's Movements is fantastic, highly recommended. Um, Francis Fox Piven was a, was a big, um, sort of intellectual, uh, inspiration for, for my research in this book. And, um, you know, she's one of the authors of Poor People's Movements. She's written another, uh, um, other, other books. I'm thinking, um, I specifically recommend, I think it's called Challenging Authority. I think it's a 2012 book by Francis Fox Piven. That's fantastic. You know, where again, where she talks about riots as this, as, um, socially as, as the withdrawal of consent to participate in the routines of civic life. Um, that we're going to, it's, it's the, it's sort of the, the simplest and oldest and most fundamental way of, of registering, um, dissent and throwing a wrench in the gears of society for people who don't otherwise have, um, have leverage. You know, you go on to write, quote, the story of strategic nonviolence has misled us. Talk about that. How is that so? So the story of strategic nonviolence is something that I think probably anybody who's involved in movements knows, whether or not they know they know it. It's in their minds. And I think most people who follow politics in the U.S., most people who are um, and, and probably in other places, too. But this is my this is my main context um, have. um just sort of have inside them. It's been it's been repeated so many times, but it comes from a specific place, and that's where I wanted to focus in this book. Is I, so I spend a whole chapter on um, the theories of this guy called Gene Sharp, 
who is a political theorist who spent most of his career at Harvard, who studied at Oxford. And um, he came up with the framework that really has become standard for understanding how nonviolence works in political movements. Um, he wrote this three-volume tome um, in the 1970s called The Politics of Nonviolent Action. And, um, and and the reason I focus on specifically that, right, because this is also like something that annoying that is annoying about some academic books sometimes is they'll like pick out some theorist and focus on their theory and like who cares, right, about this like dead white guy who studied at Oxford. But um, in, th- in this case, he like the, the, the story of strategic nonviolence as we know it is almost unchanged to the way it was written in the 70s by this particular person. And it was it's been disseminated um, by a whole field of study that grew out of his work. And the argument is almost unchanged. I mean, there's things that kind of get left out along the way, but the the fundamental aspects of the argument are there in those books. So that's why I focus so much on those. Um, but the argument goes something like this. Um, it's It starts with this kind of rudimentary understanding of social power, right? Power is not with the the people who rule governments, it's with the majority of people, um, because without people participating in everyday life, without people going to work and people, you know, agreeing to be governed, um, the governing authority means nothing. And that the majority can revoke their consent to be governed um, and in doing so can create leverage over governments or topple governments. Um, and the easiest way to do this, Sharp and, and the, the folks in strategic nonviolence argue, um, is through nonviolent means, because you need a lot of people to do it. You need a lot of people revo- revoking their uh, consent to be governed in a lot of different ways. And um, nonviolence is the most approachable way or all the tools of nonviolence. Right. And then they roll out. There's, you know, all these all these tools within that 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 um, that toolbox. But that as long as they're nonviolent. Right. They're they're going to. Um, enable you to withdraw your consent to be governed and also not trigger all these other responses, right? They're not going to trigger the most intense repression. They're not going to frighten away onlookers. They're going to be approachable for new people to join. Um, they're not going to ask too much of people physically or, or in other ways that's going to mean that they can't join. It's going to enable your movement to grow the most. And um, it's going to reach at a certain point a critical mass that all these regime officials will defect. And it'll be easier for them to defect because they won't be afraid of anything because you're nonviolent. Um, and then the government collapses. Um, so that's the kind of background framework of like the maximalist version of how you topple governments with those tools. But the the um, the sort of kernels of that argument work their way into all sorts of things. So whether it's a hyper localized thing like your specific, you know, organizing campaign to do whatever you're trying to do, um, you know, all the way up to to these like, you know, meta view of of how movements achieve power. The argument is that in order to win, if you want to win, the most effective way or oftentimes the way it's said, the only way you can do that is through strictly nonviolent means. If you do anything that violates what they call nonviolent discipline, you're going to risk screwing up all the algorithms, all the, like the social algorithms that make this work. Right? You're going to alienate people. You're, you're, you're going to splinter your movement. People are going to be frightened away and stay home. Police are going to repress you and no one's going to be on your side um, and you're going to lose. Um and, you know, that was based on a lot, a lot of theoretical arguments and um, that themselves were based on a very selective retelling of history. Um, so, you, you know, you, you pick out, as I was mentioning before, you pick out your struggle, your baseness on and you only tell certain parts of the story. You leave out the parts where in real life those movements use tactics that were not violent, that were, excuse me, that were not nonviolent. Um, and you focus on the ones that were 
that were nonviolent. I mean, you know, the the prime example is is the labor movement, right? Which is one of one of Gene Sharp's main examples, and one of the ones a lot of these folks use. The labor strike, conceptually, is the perfect example of what 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 the strategic nonviolence folks would talk about, right? The boss has money, and the boss has access to resources, and the boss has the cops on their side, but you know, the workers have their labor power and the workers can refuse to give their labor power over. That's what going on strike is. And then, you know, the company comes to a standstill and the workers get leveraged that way. Of course, in reality, when the labor movement was becoming powerful, specifically in the industrial era, defending that withdrawal of labor often meant sabotaging machinery, you know, destroying the, you know, destroying the the means of production or fighting with scabs and strike breakers, um, you know, all, all the way up to the, you know, in places like in, you know, West Virginia and Western Pennsylvania, where it, it escalated to armed struggle between workers and the mercenaries that that companies hired to, you know, force them to go back to work. Um, so those are real parts of history, but those get left out. And we tell a version of the story that's kind of a, a, a fantasy version that's that's relying on partial history. Um, and then we, we sort of build our argument out from there. More recently, this has gotten backed up with, with academic research that claims to show that empirically, this is true. Empirically, movements that use nonviolent methods are more likely to succeed uh, than movements that use nonviolent methods. Um, so I spend a, a, a large portion of the book critiquing this research and showing how it's doing in in research terms, it's doing exactly the same sort of thing. It's it's kind of like finding a way to cleverly leave out the parts of the story you don't want to tell, get the answers you want. Right. Um, and this is misleading us. This is this is making activists think that there's first of all there's like a playbook that's set that if you follow the rules, um, if you you know if you do it just right, you can build power and you can win. And um, that's not true in general. And it's also certainly not true that that playbook is purely nonviolent. You know, Christian Williams has talked a lot about how uh, policing tactics over the decades have changed. And I think it's interesting because, you know, he he discusses like how it went from sort of the police, you know, in the 1960s, just coming down and smashing on people. And what they learned was that when they did that, they got a big response back, which is that they aggravated crowds and then they had a bigger problem. And then they switched to a, a sort of like a, co-management uh style where they would try to work with people and they would try to you know help them organize events and and march with them and all that stuff and that changed really with the ascent of the anti-globalization movement where people realized that they didn't actually want to work with the police and that you know they were there to disrupt things and and challenge authority and what's interesting is that you know if you go into looking at the george floyd rebellion i mean it seems in many ways we're back to them just viewing the crowd as something that needs to be just totally smashed. Yeah. And I think that's consistent across time and, and geography. I mean, very, very frequently the catalyst for these moments is police violence, almost always police violence against people like Derek Chauvin murdering George Floyd. Um, but then also on top of that police, then um, attacking people who come out to voice their uh, to voice their pain and their hurt and their heartbreak and their opposition, you know, police then hurt those people. And that often is the, is the, um, the direct catalyst. And this plays out, you know, obviously this is, this plays out similarly, but in, in different contexts and different ways. But I also strongly recommend, um, Elizabeth Hinton's book, America on Fire, which came out last year, 
about um, you know the ways that this dynamic has has woven through uh, black resistance to white supremacy in the U.S. The way that that part gets left out of the story a lot. The way these urban rebellions um, have you know repeatedly been sparked by by this type of injustice um, and have been part of um, um, part of part of that struggle since the beginning. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think that the you know police management of protests and the way protesters engage with police is something that seems to ebb and flow. You know, both both sides are changing tactics or doing things differently. I remember, you know, I came up in the um, in the anti-war movements after the September 11th attacks, um, which which happened very close to where I lived, in which I could you know see the towers and the smoke afterwards. It was this huge traumatic event for everybody around there, obviously for everybody. Um, you know, in the country, but for a lot of people around there. And um, then, you know, that that pivoted toward this, uh, you know, the war mobilizations and the hawkish talk and the, you know, all the, the manipulation of public opinion to get us to, you know, to get the country to go to war in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that. And so I, I sort of came up in those anti-war protests. And of course, you know, anyone who came up in that era knows the about the, the free speech zones. Right. Where previously protests, you know, you go to a protest if you get a permit and you, you, know, you have the street, whatever it is. Um, uh, but, it, you know, all of a sudden we had these kind of pre-made kettles, these barricades the police would set up and allow you to protest here, but not over there, even if it's on the same street. And that could be changed, you know, without anybody's notice. That could be changed in the moment. They just sort of have you marching in a pre-set kettle. And I mean, really, nothing could be more disempowering and nothing could be more disheartening, you know, than just like being ushered into this little area that they're calling a free speech show. And it's like straight out of George Orwell. You know, and I remember in the the Occupy Wall Street moment when um, as part of those mobilizations, people would just start taking down the barricades and marching in the street. And these were occasions when it wasn't even like people were necessarily breaking windows or throwing things or fighting with cops. It was this it was the and like there were there were those arguments over like, is this violent or nonviolent? Take down the barricades. But people would just start taking down barricades and marching in the street outside of it. And at some point, the police just gave up trying to trying to maintain those and i remember someone remarking to me it stuck with me a, a comrade there just remarking at one point that like we're never going back in the barricades like for activists like this is it we've broken out now um of course that wasn't all the way true we did kind of go back for a bit but um but i think that it, it kind of set the stage for the next uprisings to take the next step beyond that and i think that um those escalations into more and more disruptive actions as the norm um, have been a big part of, yeah, how the police have turned back to being like, no, we're just going to smash these crowds. Of course, that and also the the fact that the most recent uprisings have been, um, you know, over racial justice, black-led uprisings. I think obviously that's a big part of it as well. A mask-off moment in the sense that the the state's brutality was on display, and that seemed to be really the point that they were sending to everyone else is that, you know, if you're out on the streets, you're a target, and we're going to smash you. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of also why, as I said, the conversation is kind of changing, uh, as I mentioned earlier. I mean, I think that's a big part of it, because like you said, there's these people from from mainstream media outlets. I mean, those people were being attacked, right? There's all these examples of those people being shot with with rubber bu- rubber bullets or, or pepper sprayed while they're wearing their media credentials. Um, this is a really good way to alienate the press. And I think that's been actually part of why that conversation has changed in a productive way in the public light. It's not all the way different, but I think it has started to change because of that mask off moment. And I think that that's ultimately, I mean, this gets into a bigger conversation, but that's ultimately 
one of the that, that's that's part of the role that what I would call riotous uprisings play in social change is it, it, it catalyzes these really frightening moments and those are but those are required for uh, material conflict that drives social change um, unless you know unless you're the sort of person who um, believes that you know our system is fundamentally good but has some flaws and that you can you can operate within the system to achieve justice which I don't imagine is too many of your listeners um, but and you know there's that that's an easy if people are actually willing to to listen and engage that's fairly easy I think to um, to disprove um, otherwise you know social change is going to require a pretty um, frightening confrontation with with authority with power and moments come to the fore uh, when movements take steps like that. That kind of brings us to our next question. You write, uh, if we are to build a uh, social political power from below, it is essential we grapple with riots. And I'm curious with this in mind, how do autonomous movements uh, get riots wrong perhaps and, or perhaps maybe come to the wrong conclusions about them? It's a good question. I mean, um, this also gets it like, so it was an interesting challenge Um this, this whole research project and particularly writing this book, it's been an interesting challenge trying to write this for multiple audiences um, at the same time. I, I want it to be useful and I want it to be able to speak to people who are, you know, in in communities that are really committed to nonviolent discipline um, and be able to walk people through the issues with that um, without saying, look, you're you have to do anything differently. You can you can be nonviolent all you want. If you believe in that, that's great. But the the story you're being told is is misleading you. It's wrong. I also wanted to be able to speak to folks who are in communities that are more comfortable with um with breaking with nonviolent discipline um, in different ways, which I can you know I can talk more to that in a moment. And I wanted to be able to speak to folks in you know in in scholarly circles who are researching this and people in broader public who are interested. So I guess the reason I preface the answer that way is because um, I think different sort of different sectors get riots wrong in different ways. And not everybody does. I think some people certainly understand them very well. And and those are mostly the people who are doing them, I think. And that's why I spend a couple of chapters with interview studies, because when a lot of folks talk about riots, the first thing that happens is we lose the individual rioters in the mix. And people get flattened into this kind of like picture of the mob. And then we know we can argue about if that's good or bad or what it is, but we kind of lose track that there's people in there who are doing things for reasons and those are having impacts on them. And then they go out into the world to like continue to be people and do different things. So um, I think the people who are engaging in these actions probably understand them the best. Um, but I think, you know, I think for a lot of folks who are committed to social change through organizing, through movements, um, there's this background sense that when riots happen, it's threatening their ability to make change in a, in a productive way. It's threatening their, uh, maybe their message. I think it's, um, it's, it's acutely offensive to folks in the nonprofit industrial complex who are, you know, who see social change as being possible when, um, they can control as much as possible about what's happening. Um, and riots are out of control. They're out of control even for the people who want to control movements.
I don't know if I disagree with that, but I find it interesting. There seems to be a dynamic that a lot of like the nonprofits and you know what we would call you know the official left, you know parties, unions, uh, you know official nonprofit groups and all that stuff. I mean, they seem to have really developed a very parasitic relationship with like genuine class struggle or rebellion organically appearing. I think that's true. No, I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. And I think, you know, it's also, I'm not trying to paint with one brush. There's obviously different organizations and different people within that. Um, but I think that one of the ways you can see the contradiction come out is how, um, you know, riots are symbolically powerful. They're really powerful events um, that I think get it a, a core understanding of, of popular discontent. It's, it's, it's like the iconic image of, of, um, of people rising up. So you'll see sometimes, um, you know, these groups using images of riots, burning police cars even, um, in their, you know, in their social media posts or in their, you know, in the, in the art that they have in their, you know, offices or in their homes or whatever. Um, so you'll see representations of it and you'll see kind of discussion of it that's, that's either in the abstract or when it's further away from them or when it's historical, um, in a way that, 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 you know, as you say, kind of draws energy from that. But then in the moment, um, you know, opposing the people who are actually doing it, right? Like I've seen the same organization post images of burning police cars, like, you know, like, like art, uh, not photographs, but like art of burning police cars in their social media. And then, you know, when someone actually sets a car on fire, accusing those people of being outside agitators who are, you know, ruining the march. Um, and so I there's this, this contradiction going on between like the symbols of these events and actually what it means um, to break with nonviolent discipline in the moment. There's definitely a sort of like dual consciousness within a lot of folks where they support the revolts sometimes, but then also they're kind of parroting back what people are putting out on social media about it all being a trick or this is really what they want us to do because of X, Y, Z or something like that. Right. And let's talk about the, the agent provocateur thing, because that is a big that, that works its way in. And that's an important thing to talk about, because like that's a real thing. That is a real thing. Of course, that happens. Like, of course, there are really agent provocateurs. Um, there's people who, you know, who go further than that. There's federal agents who try to, you know, who try to, like, trick people into saying the word bomb so that they can arrest them, you know, and, and charge them with, you know, with uh, with with terrorism and then seem like they're doing their jobs. Um, you know, of course, there's all sorts of examples of this. Um, but that doesn't mean that also there aren't organic examples of of uh, of uprisings where people are are rioting. Um, I often talk about how it's like, you know, the police are always telling people to remain nonviolent. Right. Like anytime they do something horrible, every time police abuse somebody or kill somebody uh, and people come out to protest, they put out a statement urging protesters or demanding protesters remain nonviolent, right? The police will say it. The mayor says it. Everybody says it. Um, you know, if they can, they get family members to say it, right? And some, again, not to say that that's not always their, you know, what they, what they believe in, but the, there's always this demand that people remain nonviolent. Um, but nobody takes that to be like, well, therefore, if we're nonviolent, we're doing what they want. No, we shouldn't, like, we shouldn't, take our orders from what the state wants us to do. But we also shouldn't do the exact opposite always and assume that's what like they're doing their thing. They're trying to disrupt movements. They're trying to interrupt movements. We're, doing our thing. Like, we're trying to build power. We're trying to change things from below. And, um, you know, we, we shouldn't just take from the fact that they're 
that there are real examples of agent provocateurs that, you know, we should never do anything provocative. Especially looking at the, the George Floyd rebellion, the, the most dangerous sort of kind of narrative was that the police infiltrators are there to basically do property crimes, to basically trick people into rioting in order for the state then to come down, which totally sort of negates the reality that repression is a constant and the, the police don't need an excuse to do that. And also too, just that it paints anyone that engages in, you know, the breaking of windows or writing graffiti or looting or anything like that, then as non-legitimate actors, which is of course the state's official narrative that these are criminals, not protesters, nothing they do is legitimate that they need to be locked up and, you know, throw away the key. Um, but yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, yeah, all of that, and you know, also to be clear, I mean, the the sorts of of um, you know, law enforcement entrapment of people into into doing things like that is like it does happen in protest movements. I think it's been much more heavily focused on on Muslims and Arab Americans, um, but but it's something that you know we should be very much you know aware of um, because you know, because that that absolutely is a thing um, that they do, but. Another function. So it's true that a lot of it is 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 gathering information so that they can arrest people. Um, you know, I think another broader function also is that it, it it promotes paranoia, and it makes people always wonder, you know, is the is the next person over a cop or not? And like, you know, we should be cognizant of that. We should take security culture, you know, seriously to the point that we don't like, you know, we don't just like develop. Um, you know, again, we don't, we don't go too far down, down the paranoia rabbit hole, but we should assume if we're in public that, you know, if we're doing a public action or if we have a public meeting, that there's, that there's informants there listening. It's just a good assumption to, to make without assuming everyone you know is, you know, is an informant or a cop or anything like that. And that's what the, that's what this kind of accusation that anybody who's doing, who's engaging in any property destruction must be an agent of the state is it's promoting that kind of mentality. And then it, it reproduces itself within this like carceral approach to movements where it's like, well, we have to get rid of them. Uh, we have to separate them from us. We have to make it clear that they're not us. And, you know, if you want to talk about what what the, you know, law enforcement designed to control protests is, they very often have the same approach. Like riot police, you know, if you read their materials, um, they're, they're looking to separate the parts of the crowd that they think are more raucous from the rest. And they would rather appear as the defenders of the, you know, the parts of the crowd that are most moderate from the parts of the crowd that are more, um, you know, more aggressive. And so you're playing right into that when you automatically accuse anybody doing anything um, that's not nonviolent discipline of being an agent of the state. I think that's a problem. Um, so this is a really interesting question. You know, you're right. Riots raise our collective pulse and many of us do not have a coherent understanding of the relationship between rioting and social change. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, just, just I mean, starting with that, I, I mean, I agree. I think it's I think there have absolutely been changes. I think that it's not been what we need, of course. You know, this is not um, uh, it's not it's, it's not nearly the scale that we need. We have to keep going. But that moment, I do think changed changed a lot. And the first thing is that it just brought a lot of people to the streets. Like you said, a lot of political newcomers, a lot of people had their first experience with protests in this massive moment. I think that's really important for people, uh, for their consciousness. You know, when, there's, there's been a, there's been a, a lot of research that said that, um, just in terms of sheer numbers, it was the largest, um, protest moment in U.S. history. Um, when I, when I was doing the, some of the, the statistical work for the book, 
uh, where I look at, I sort of look at instances of what you would call riots and nonviolent protest alongside each other. And I graph, um, I graph it over time. In the US, I had to actually stop the graph at 2019 because if you include the instances of protest and riots in 2020, it like flatlines the rest of the whole graph. There's so many um, more recorded instances of protest in 2020 that you almost can't see anything else. I don't think that's actually accurate in scale. But what I think it is, is, you know, that data comes from media reports on protests. And what it tells me is all of a sudden media was really going to pains to catalog all of the instances of protest in every city and every town all over the place. People are, are coming out to demand racial justice um, and demand, you know, accountability from from police, at least if not defunding or if not disbanding um, and abolishing police. Um and I think that speaks to that speaks to a larger um, cultural shift where people are paying more attention to the importance of movements um, writ large, but also people are paying a lot more attention to racial justice. Racial justice questions um, are are you know front and center in a lot of ways, and I certainly think that it'll be it'll be two steps forward, one step back at least. And you know we've already sort of there's been this um, this move back, and there's been you know floods of police funding that have gone into. Um, into departments, you know, federally and across across the country. But I do also think there's a lot of reasons to believe there's there's a lot of evidence that a lot of, you know, police officers became a lot less comfortable with their jobs. And it seems like a lot of people left their jobs. And um, I think those numbers were a bit inflated by the like, you know, the the these like Blue Lives Matter folks who are trying to act like, you know, the the world's collapsing because of this. Um, but but I think that there's some reality to that. And I think that there's been a bit more of the consciousness of, you know, what is the role of police? Who are these people? What are they doing? Like, are they on our side, even for people who aren't, you know, who don't come from communities that are historically oppressed by police, like like poor black communities? Even if you're, you know, for a lot of folks just being like, wait, wait, wait who are these people and what are they doing? And seeing them more as an occupying force than is this sort of like 1950s happy-go-lucky police officer that a lot of like middle-class white people became used to. Um, I think that there's a lot of shifts like that that are that are going to be important for for future uprisings. Um, and then you know, because you asked about the relationship between rioting and social change. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's the one part of it that I mentioned before about where I think we're there's this this kind of hegemonic narrative that um, protest movements are nonviolent. And, um, and I think that, um, we need to challenge that. We need to reincorporate riots. We need to put them back in sort of their place in, in historic struggles for liberation. Um, I think a lot of that's been held in this kind of cognitive dissonance, like, like you mentioned earlier. Like, I think there's a lot of people who, for example, um, you know, have this baseline view that nonviolent protests are important and work better and riots are, are, you know, hurt our ability to make change. There's a lot of those same people who also understand that the Stonewall riot was incredibly important um, in all these ways and kind of hold those things as, as separate. And I want to kind of bring those back together and understand how these moments are um, are important for a lot of reasons. They can be catalytic for whole struggles. Um, they can raise people's consciousness. They're important for people who are in the streets, who as just a kind of, in some cases, an emotional response to to, you know, histories of, of, of dispossession and oppression uh, and repression. Um, and they can be important for people who aren't in the streets to see, to see that, that um, you know, that things are not okay. People are not okay with the status quo, with what's going on. And they can be important for authorities to understand that, that movements still exist. Movements are real. 
Um, you know, as, as, as I write in the book, it, sometimes we have to feel in our bodies like we're resisting. Um, some of the people I interview, for example, in, um, in South Africa talk about how it, there's this one story someone tells, um, the folks I interview in South Africa are, are student organizers who are part of a student uprising there a few years ago. Um, and someone talks about this march they had as a peaceful march and, um, you know, police and security guards attack the march as, as happens all the time all over the place and are shooting people with rubber bullets and are hitting people with batons. And she says, you know, people are hiding out. They're sort of crawling around trying to, you know, get away from the cops. The cops are marching through the streets. It feels like a war zone. And at that point, some activists set um, a bus stop on fire, like a bus shelter, um, and start throwing things. And she talks about how heartening that was and how empowering it was to see that, to remember, like, no, we're still in the fight. It's not necessarily about even on the tactical level, like those actions driving the cops out of the streets or, or, or like winning the struggle. It was about registering that discontent and about showing the, the authorities and showing onlookers and showing themselves that, that this is a fight and we're still in the fight and we're committed to the fight. And I think those sorts of um, emotional aspects of riots are what make them such powerful symbols. And what make them um, sort of endure over time in these uh, as as examples of uprising, um, and so I think um, that's that's kind of a, a part of the importance of riots in the in the in the process of social change that I want to highlight. You know, you're right. For conservative riots are what happens when society gets out of control. For liberals and progressive riots are what happens when protest goes too far. So how should we see them, especially when the powers that be in the media want to reduce them down? to disorder a lot of the a lot of people's opinions on riots i find are you know they actually come from some some pretty arcane ideas about mobs and crowds there's this you know there was this real push in the uh in the 19th century um to for like social psychologists and and um what some people at the time called crowd psychologists Talking about this idea of, of, of like mob mentality, um, or, or sort of herd mentality, that when people get together, they kind of become their baser selves, they become inherently violent. And, um, and there's this idea of kind of social contagion, that if, if some of them start getting violent, they'll all get violent. People who otherwise were like good model citizens, all of a sudden they'll be like ripping society apart. This is kind of like a, a version of, of, of the crowd that like you'd see in movies like the purge or something like that. Like people in their core base level, if you just let them go are, are going to rip everything apart. And we have, you know, the state and all these, these sort of like institutions that are keeping us uh, civilized, right? There's these, these ideas that come from a lot of really problematic places. And I find that the views of both conservatives and liberals draw from this in different ways. Like conservatives think, um, you know, that, that this is why we need, control. This is why we need authority, right? Because those people and, you know, you sub substitute whoever you want as those people, but it's almost always something that's racist is, you know, the, the, are going to ruin things unless you keep things under control for everybody. And then like, we can, you know, we can like go on with our, um, with our, with our lives. Liberals, I, th I feel like approach it from a similar place that just a little bit more um, condescending where it's like, you know, oh, I, yeah, I kind of agree with what you're saying, but if you, you know, if you do it in those ways that you do it, then it's going to all go wrong. So just listen to me, 
tell you how to like go step by step. And then, you know, we'll never really get there because I don't really care that much. But, um, you know, but please, for God's sake, don't go and actually set anything on fire about it. You know, no matter how much you're hurting or no matter how much um, even it makes sense in a, in a particular moment, um, you know, you have to organize it through these other ways. Um, and um, I think, you know, th- those are both, um, well, they're both, they're both wrong for a lot of reasons. I think the Democrats, to tie it back to what you were just saying, you know, the Democrats take that position of like, okay, you're, maybe you're going too far, but like, w- we know what you're, what you're getting at, you know, whether it's, whether it's racial justice or whether it's labor or whether it's, you know, gender justice or, or, you know, whatever the, whatever the struggle is, like, just go through, go through us, um, you know, quiet down or maybe make just enough noise that we can use it as leverage. But then like, you know, we'll get it done. We, we, we care about this. This is, we are the party that cares about this. And then they go and they either don't do anything about it or they do the opposite. And this is part of, you know, for me, what leads us on a path toward fascism um, is the more you convince people that there's one party that's on your side and then you see that party betray you time and again. I mean, like, you know, the most recent is the is the the railway workers. Right. Like the, like the Democrats complain about losing, you know, losing working class voters to Republicans. But then when you talk on and on about being the the party of of the working class, the party of workers, the party of labor, you know, Biden's the most pro-labor president and whatever. Um, and then you have an industry that's ready to go on strike that could actually f- it up. All of a sudden you step in and you tell them, no, you can't do that, though. In fact, we're going to force you to go back to work without health care. So, you know, what do you expect? Where do you expect people's frustrations to go? Um, they're going to go one direction or another. Um but it's not going to be within, you know, within the system as it's set up. Anyways, I digress. But um, I think that the I think we should see riots as a a part of unjust societies. They're a part of the way people respond to to exploitation and deprivation and oppression. Uh, they're really longstanding. They're old. They're they're almost an archetypal, as I say, example of resistance from below, of collective resistance of people who don't have access to leverage from within the system and in many cases don't have access to or are, are interested in, you know, organizing in terms of martial struggle. I also distinguish it's one of the problems with the violence, nonviolence, you know, binary is that you lump everything in violence together, right? Riots are very different from, you know, like organized armed struggle where people are organized into martial ranks uh, and have a, you know, a party or a, um, you know, an army or something that's organizing that and has a particular type of strategy in terms of warfare. Riots are something different. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's often people who don't have access to that sort of a thing or, or aren't, you know, for whatever reason, um, aren't able to organize that, um, but are going to step up and fight back in a, in a physical way. Um, and that's not something you can organize out of the repertoire that's not no matter how many nonviolent direct action trainings you run the next one isn't not going to involve that you're not going to be able to get people to resist in the in like just the most palatable way that breaks you know just the right number of rules only a few of the rules in a nonviolent way not the other ones this is a way that people react if they're if they're pushed far enough and long enough um and you know we should see that as part of the struggle we should see that as as you know um and when i say we that we very often as people who are out there doing that, we should see those moments even in ourselves as part of struggle. They're not the only part of struggle. I think also, you know, on the other hand, I think there's a lot of people in the communities that, um, you know, support or participate in riots 
who um, who kind of elevate them to almost this hallowed status, um, whereby you know if we just riot enough, society will will, will change for the better. There, there's like elements of truth to that, but also, you know, that sort of social change takes a lot of other types of transformations too. Riots have their place in that, um, you know, strategically, uh, operationally and emotionally, maybe most of all, um, symbolically as well. Um, and we should, you know, we should integrate it into those struggles in that way. For sure. Uh, we'll talk about the chapter, why civil resistance works with the wrong data. What do you mean by that? Okay. So, um, the argument for strategic nonviolence has become really based on empirical research. And what I mean by that is that whenever you're actually in a debate about this with somebody or whenever, let's just say whenever there's actually an uprising going on and then you have this flurry of debates of talking heads or of, of sort of like, you know, articles um, online, op-eds and things like that. Um, the, the, the most prominent argument for nonviolence nowadays is not to do with like, it's morally, you know, it's morally important to be nonviolent or it's, you know, we're trying to win the hearts and minds of, of, um, you know, our enemies. It's really about, it works better. That's the argument. It works better. And that argument is based nowadays on research, um, that's done by, you know, a handful of people in, in nonviolent studies in different universities. Um, most prominently, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan, who published a book in 2011 called Why Civil Resistance Works. And that book is based on a data set that Chenoweth, um, that Chenoweth runs. Uh, they're based at Harvard. And there's a number of, they sort of continue to update this data set that claim, essentially it compares um, what they say are, are primarily violent struggles to overthrow governments worldwide and primarily nonviolent struggles to overthrow governments worldwide. They call maximalist political goals. So, yeah, uh, overthrowing a government or ousting a foreign occupation or seceding from a state or things like that. Um, and, you know, they run the numbers and they say, look, historically, uh, nonviolent struggles work better. And whenever you read an article online that says that people should, that rioting is going to ruin the movement or like, you know, like Antifa punching a Nazi is going to ruin the movement, um, or whatever it is, um, it often will cite this research, you know, one paper or another or this book or something that comes from this data set, uh, which is called the Nonviolent and Violent uh, um, Conflicts and Outcomes data set, NAVCO. Um, it'll very often cite research that comes from, from this data set because, you know, at the end of the day, what are you going to argue? They're going to say, look, there's all these arguments for why, you know, people should be defending themselves or why, you know, rioters are, are, are giving voice to the, you know, to, to the movement in one way or another. And they'll say, yeah, but it doesn't work. Look, the data says so. This person has run or these people have run, uh, you know, run the data and we can see empirically it doesn't work. So I focus a chapter on unpacking that data. And I spent a long time doing this because when I read that book, you know, it was confusing to me in a number of ways because the whole idea of strategic nonviolence seems odd to me because the point of strategy is, you know, you assess you have a goal and then you assess the options and you figure out what works best. If you're calling one of the options strategic at the outset, that strikes me not as strategic thinking, but the, you know, I was, I was interested in their, in their findings. If, I mean, if that's legitimate, that should tell us something. If we really care about changing the world, um, you know, we, we should care about these kinds of, about this kind of research. Um, but when I dug through the data set and I went through this data set or series of this data set cell by cell over years. I mean, over and over and over, I went through this stuff because for a while I was convinced 
that I was seeing things that this was not that this this couldn't quite be right. But um, basically, what happens is the the two uh, categories, the violent category and the nonviolent category. The violent category comes mostly from other pre-existing data sets, mostly this one called the Correlates of War data set. It's a prominent data set in uh, political science that ca- that catalogs every armed conflict going back to going back to the uh, 18th or 19th century, going back a long way. Um, and, you know, there's a subset of those that's intrastate conflict or civil wars, right? Um, armed struggle going on within a state. That's the violent struggles in the data set. The nonviolent struggles, they compose, the researchers compose themselves. And, um, you know, they, these basically are unarmed uprisings. So, um, you know, not armed struggle. And the armed struggle, the threshold is high. I mean, these are two armed parties um, with at least a thousand battle-related casualties in a year. It's a high threshold. Uh, we're talking about warfare. Um, anything less than that gets categorized in the nonviolent section. Um, that is, if it's not organized along martial lines, along, you know, like guerrilla warfare or something like that. Um, and that's called primarily nonviolent, which is then called nonviolent. Um, so you run the numbers and you see that th- those conflicts have overthrown governments more than the armed conflicts. I actually think there's a lot of things that are wrong with this data set, um, which I, which I, you know, go through in, in detail in the book. Um, but even at baseline, we're not talking about violence and nonviolence the way movements talk about these things. Like in the movement, when we're arguing over violence and nonviolence, we're talking about somebody like breaking a storefront window or, you know, setting a, a car on fire or, you know, pushing a dumpster into the street or, or punching a Nazi or, you know, throwing things at the cops or, you know, building street barricades. Like these are the kinds of things people are arguing over, not like taking up arms and going to the mountains like that does happen in the world, of course, still uh, much less so than um, than in the era when this violence, nonviolence debate, as we know it, um, developed in the 60s and 70s, much less so today. But of course, it still exists. But for for a lot of us, that's not where the argument is happening. That's not where the most, um, um, uh, you know, the most contentious, the most fractious arguments are happening. But what we see is we see this research get repurposed to then make arguments like Chenoweth writing an article um, after the Disrupt J20 protests, um, after Trump's inauguration, when there was the, you know, there was all the disruptive actions that tried to keep people out of the inauguration. Then there was the black bloc that was, you know, that was, um, you know, going through DC and, and causing some mayhem. And, um, and, you know, then there was, there's these mass arrests. There's 200 plus people that are facing 70 years in prison for, for felony riot. Um, and in, in, in that moment, uh, when, when we're fighting for, you know, for jail support for these folks, um, and, and to, you know, to make the most of, of that resistance, um, this person writes an article based on this data saying, look, that's going to hurt the movement because my, my data says so. Look, riots don't work. Violence doesn't work. Nonviolence works, but that would not appear in the data set at all. That would be considered nonviolent struggle in the data set, right? Because that's not armed struggle. So we see this sort of conceptual slippage get used in these really misleading ways. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's a big problem. That one particularly sticks with me because, you know, I was there that day. I was in DC that weekend and I'm, I, you know, very fortunate that I wasn't cattled and I wasn't one of the arrestees, but I have a lot of very close friends and comrades who were. Um, and, you know, seeing that article and that research in that moment get used in a way that was reducing support for the arrestees. And that was that was um, that was, you know, limiting the momentum of that moment, like around the world. This person, you know, 
Donald Trump was actually president of this country. Like, can we for a second like that happened? And in that moment, people went around D.C., you know, and there were like windows broken. There was a limousine on fire. Like those images went global. That was what accompanied Trump's inauguration. That was important for, you know, for resistance and to send a message. Um, and I saw that getting diminished by this argument that no, 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 they're doing it wrong. Don't do that. That's going to screw everything up. Only talk about, you know, the women's march, which happened the next day, which was nonviolent, things like that. So, you know, that for me was, was one of the, the inspirations. I had already been working on this research for a couple of years at that point. Um, but that really sort of led me in that direction of like, look, this is a problem. This research that says nonviolence works better is a problem. It's not saying what people think it's saying. And it's, it's, it's serving a destructive purpose in the movement. You know, you write about the disruptive tactics of the, Am I pronouncing it correctly? The the fallist movements. Mm-hmm. I believe that's yeah. when you're discussing uh, s- stuff in Africa. I I hadn't heard of that before. Can you talk a little bit about that? The one interview study in the book is with folks in the U.S. who participated in Black Block actions, and um, I, I wanted another interview study in the book. First of all, because I think you know my perspective coming from the U.S. I think a lot of times here um, we can. Um, we can be a little bit narrow minded about the scope of struggle um, because we're in the imperial center. And that's that's sort of just what happens. Um, a lot of folks just don't, um, you know, or maybe are only given or only seeing certain aspects of struggles in other places. So I really wanted to um, to incorporate experiences of folks from from elsewhere. And um, around the time I was, I was starting this project, there was a student movement popping off in South Africa. Um, um, first, um, called roads must fall. So the fallist comes from um, a series of movements that involve the phrase must fall, like, you know, fall as in like down with something. So, um, the first was called roads must fall, um, as in Cecil Rhodes, who was a, um, you know, a, a pioneer colonist, um, British in South Africa and was, and, you know, the, uh, the country that's, you know, called Zimbabwe now, which was for a time, uh, called Rhodesia was named for this guy, um, uh, Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes, right? He was a, um, not just, a, a colonist and a, and a very wealthy colonist, but he was also like an ideological colonist. He was an architect of a lot of these ideas of, of, of white supremacy and colonization, um, uh, of Africa. And, um, there was a statue of him at, uh, the University of Cape Town in South Africa that sat over the, the university. And, you know, I'm sure this had pissed people off for a really long time, but in this, in this um, particular moment when, uh, you know, grievances around a bunch of things um, in the university um, calls for decolonization of curriculum and for, um, you know, for, for more diversity in, in the um, uh, faculty and teaching staff and more focus on, on African politics and things like that. In this moment, somebody, um, uh, vandalized the statue and it, it sort of, uh, sparked this movement, uh, which became called Roads Must Fall. And, um, there were, it, it, it spread to other universities in South Africa, it went global, um, people fighting again for a sort of decolonization of, of higher education in South Africa. Um, that spiraled into other movements, um, one called Outsourcing Must Fall, which was about uh, outsourcing of university labor. These were all based around universities. Um, and then one called Fees Must Fall, which became the, the largest. Um, that was about um, reducing university fees that had become, you know, prohibitively expensive for uh, for for uh, poor and low income folks. Um, 
uh, who are predominantly black people. And a lot of these universities, the historically white universities in South Africa were still disproportionately white. Um, and, um, and, and, um, you know, again, exclusionary to, to poor folks. So the, these movements collectively became called fallist movements. And, um, and it was, you know, I noticed it in part because I had some, you know, I'd been to South Africa once, um, and I had, um, I had some friends and comrades who, who were over there, who were working there. And, um, I was, I was paying attention to this movement. It looked, it was really inspiring. It was, uh, you know, they were, they were mixing different forms of tactics in ways that, that, you know, we would call diversity of tactics, maybe. Um, you know, they were occupying university campuses. Uh, they were marching, there were sit-ins, but there were also, you know, more riotous actions. There were, you know, ex- exchange of thrown projectiles and fights with security guards. And in some cases, um, setting fire to university buildings and, and things like that. Um, and so I was really interested in it. And I felt as though, you know, as a researcher and someone who, um, you know, who, who cares about being, you know, being cognizant of the, the, the dynamics of sometimes the uncomfortable dynamics between being a researcher and being someone who's part of movements myself, being an activist and wanting to do, you know, robust research, accurate research, but also um, someone who, you know, who wants to further movements goals. Um, I, was, I was very conscious of that and what, and what my position as an outside researcher would be in another country. I was part of student organizing in the U.S. Um, both when I was when I was younger, when I was in, in college, and um, and also in graduate school. I've been a part of uh, the you know the the labor organizing campaign, at my university, and so I had a lot of um, experience and connections through student organizing that I felt like could help me um, you know could help me be um, a more you know a more approachable and more responsible researcher there uh, coming in with some of that um, some of that context. So. You know, I interviewed a bunch of folks who were part of those movements, uh, who participated in different kinds of in different kinds of actions, specifically focusing, as I did with with folks in the U.S., specifically focusing on actions that um, that could be considered violent or could be considered riots, and you know how those actions felt, um, you know how how those actions changed people's perspectives about movements and um, and things about that. You know, part of that was to do with um, in, in both cases to do with, I wanted to, to be as responsible as possible and not incriminate anybody. I wouldn't want people to talk about hyper specifics about like who did what, where, um, you know, we can learn things from that, but that's also really, that's vulnerable to being exploited by, by authorities in a number of ways. And I wanted to be really uh, cognizant of protecting people's, you know, security as much as possible. And I thought focusing on the more affective and emotional impacts of these actions First of all, it was better in that in that way, but also I think it does get overlooked a lot when we talk about protests. I think you know there's been a kind of generational shift towards strategic questions in general, not just around nonviolence, but I think there's a real focus on like winning and how do we win, and um, I think there should be. That's a good thing, but it also can lead us to you know underestimate some of the um, aspects of movements that aren't so cut and dry, that aren't so like um uh you know obviously instrumental in ways that are going to achieve a specific tangible thing uh, i think you know the emotional Im- importance of different types of actions is uh, is really is really a massive part of movements and uprisings and what inspires people to take the streets what inspires people to to give their lives over to to movements for justice so i focused on those areas and um you know we, we found really interesting things i mean i think it was similar what folks in south africa said as folks in the us but also also different 
um, in ways to different contexts. Um, it's, you know, it was a movement, but, um, you know, also aspects to do with, uh, I'm sure that to do with the different, the different political history, the different racial dynamics, um, and things like that as well. But a lot of folks spoke to the, you know, the empowering and the humanizing aspects of riotous actions where, you know, again, it's specifically not in an instrumental way. Like if, if people are marching and they're going to a specific place and security forces block them. Um, and people start fighting with the security forces. You know, when you get into it, interviewing people, they admit they're like, look, it's not even about getting in there anymore. I'm not even sure I thought we could. It's about registering that we're not okay with this. It's about letting them know and letting ourselves know that we're resisting, we're fighting. Uh, we're not just going to, you know, let you push us around here or there. They are. I think they're a big part of what sustains movements over time and what what can can catalyze um, at times can catalyze whole uprising things like the Oscar Grant rebellion, the George Floyd uprising. I mean, even if people aren't involved in that, they're still touched by those movements and they realize that these are moments of possibility and they resonate with people and they change people's perceptions of what's possible. And that's a big deal, you know, because not everybody's going to listen to this podcast. Not everybody's going to, you know, have that experience where they read a Noam Chomsky book or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I I, I really think so, and I I hope that I, you know I hope that that comes out in in some of these interviews. Um, I may as well take the opportunity to say I'm really grateful for the folks who are willing to speak to me uh, for this for this project. I know that for for some people, especially the people that I wasn't directly connected to, which is a number of them ultimately in the in the research, it was um it was a bit of a of a leap of faith that I was gonna you know that, that I was gonna um um, you know, do justice to, to, to their words. And I hope I did, um, especially in the South African conference, uh, um, context again, where I was playing this sort of uncomfortable position as, you know, folks there are used to, to researchers from the U S coming over and, and, um, you know, like taking, you know, this or that from their, you know, from their research and coming back and, and, you know, publishing it for their academic careers. That was something that was voiced, that was voiced a lot. And I hope, um, again, I hope I did justice to those words. I also want to want to take the opportunity to to recommend to your listeners a couple um, really good pieces of writing um, uh, or publications about the fallist uprisings, because um, you know these also these folks also made great interviewees because these are these are students who study this stuff. A lot of these people were, you know, not just organizers and activists, um, people who directly studied you know politics and social change, and so were were very you know critical and self-critical and thoughtful and reflective about these things as they were doing them. I mean, these are, this was a movement where people were holding, you know, nightly study sessions um, on this stuff in, um, you know, in, in the occupied universities. But there's a, there's a, a edited book called Rioting and Writing, um, Diaries of the Witz um, Fallists. Um, Witz is short for University of Witwatersrand. Um, it's a, a university in Johannesburg. Um, uh, rioting and writing, which is edited by a lot of people. I don't remember all of their names, but Chinguno is the, is the sort of leading, um, um, uh, name when that gets cited. And a different one called, um, Public Action, which was a sort of like newspaper style. It's like a sort of a, um, newspaper size zine kind of that was an edited publication, um, um also by activists who took part in the, the, the fees must fall on the other, um, fallist uprisings. Really excellent contributions in there. That's edited by, um, three people called Naidu, um, uh, Gamidzi and Magano. And I highly recommend both of those. 
Um, I think those are available. Um, I think those are available online, but if not, I'm happy to try to um, try to try to find links and, and share them with you so you can share afterwards. There are several protesters in Atlanta that are now being charged with domestic terrorism. You know, with the lessons from your book in mind, um, how do we inform the struggles to come, especially as the state uh, remains as brutal as ever? Yeah, I mean, you know, first, I mean, separate from the research in the book, but I mean, you know, like, obviously support, support the defendants, um, support political prisoners. And, um, I've, I'm, I'm not directly connected to the, to the, um, you know, the sit-in in, in, in Atlanta and the, you know, um, uh, you know, opposition to, to Cop City or whatever, but I'm a, um, you know, supporter and uh, admirer. And so I hope folks support that struggle and continue to support that struggle. It's really important. Um, I guess as far as, as what the implications are for, for the arguments that, that I make from this research, I mean, I think it's really just in general to, to think outside the box when it comes to our resistance. Um, I think one of the problems with the, the, the violence, nonviolence debate as it's been rolled out is I think it serves the function of limiting our scope of, of what's possible and imagining that there's these sort of like preset playbooks, um, that we have to, that we have to retain. Um, but really, you know, there's, there's this, you know, infinite constellation of options for organized resistance and ways to, to jam up the gears of systems of oppression and of the forces of, of repression. And, um, and, you know, I would hope folks take, just, you know, take that, um, uh, the, the, you know, impetus to, to think about all the options, to engage in all the, you know, all the options that make sense to think about different historical examples and what makes sense. And, um, you know, and then the other side, sometimes there's, there's responses that are not, that are not pre-organized. A lot of riots, I mean, this gets into, you know, I think a lot of the, the issue with talking about these things strategically is a lot of times riots are not a strategic action in the sense that people don't always plan to do it ahead of time. Um, there are sometimes spontaneous and organic responses that are, um, that are no less necessary for that. Um, right. There's this other like problematic binary of like, you know, rational and emotional. That's, that's, um, that's no good, right? These, these things are all intertwined and mixed up and sometimes, um, our, our reactions and our, uh, are, are important to roll into our future, our, you know, our future, uh, resistance. And so, you know, hopefully that's not too cryptic, but, um, yeah, I hope people examine all the options available to them. Yeah. There's a line in the book that I, I find, uh, great to kind of leave people on. It says there are major opportunities we forfeit if we aren't willing to set things on fire with that in mind. <laughs> Tell people how they can get the book and any other thoughts you have that you want to uh, sign off with. Yeah, well, I mean, get, you know, um, AK Press uh, has the book online. Hopefully your local info shop or bookstore, if they don't have it, maybe ask them to carry it. And your library, support libraries, get your library to carry it. Um, that would be great. Fuck Amazon. Um, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully those are some ways. I'm going to be doing some talks in person coming up. Um, and, um, hopefully AK press will help share in some of that stuff online. So also come and talk with me in person and pick up one from me. I'll sell you one for cheaper if you come in person. Um, and yeah, otherwise, um, let's, let's talk about resistance. Let's talk about all the ways we can, we can jam up the system and we can build power for a better world. This has been the it's going down podcast. 
Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.